Well, we're continuing on tonight. Um, I will remind you uh, that uh, there will be other people preaching at some point uh, during the sabbatical, um, but our teaching team is jumping in mostly uh, more of the second half of the sabbatical. It just happened to be that way. So um, just wanted to let you know, it's not just going to be me, but uh, tonight it is, so um, buckle up. Uh, but no, um, I've really enjoyed this uh, this series. Uh, I, I selfishly enjoyed preparing the messages and stuff. Um, also grateful to everyone uh, who came last night and attempted uh, a pool party with us. Uh, we got this really fun experience that I call uh, a swimming sandwich, where there's water underneath you and water coming down above you, and you're just in between water, and it's it's great. So we swam for a few minutes, and then the the, the rain ca- caught up too much, and uh, we had to call it, but we will, we will reschedule that. Um, I think we're, we already have a date, but it's not confirmed yet, but uh, we're going to, the pool called today, and we're going to reschedule that, so thanks for everyone who attempted it. It was the best 10 minutes of swimming I've ever had, um, but uh, it, I really am looking forward to that and grateful for everyone that came out. Uh, so last week, we, uh, we talked about the gospel according to Jesus. Uh, what is the gospel that Jesus preaches? Uh, that's what we talked about last week. We considered why we, we call the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why we call them Gospels. And tonight we're going to finish uh, kind of our, our biblical exegesis of the Gospel, really trying to define the Gospel according to Scripture. Uh, tonight we're going to finish that with considering the Gospel according to Paul. Uh, and then next week, we're going to wrap up with considering the gospel according uh, to Wheatland uh, and really just thinking about how we as Wheatland witness, um, how we witness well, how we could witness better. We're just going to consider um, how Wheatland um, witnesses in accordance with the, this definition of the gospel that we've been building over the last uh, few weeks. But last week, we defined the gospel uh, as the saving story of Jesus, which brings fulfillment to the story of Israel and which culminates in his death and resurrection. And so according to this definition, uh, we can say that Jesus preached the gospel. Uh, We could say that uh, Peter preached the gospel, that Stephen preached the gospel, that Philip preached the gospel, and that Paul preached the gospel. Uh, Paul is who we're focusing on tonight, but we're kind of using Paul as a way to think about that last part of the definition the culminating act of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection. We're going to kind of use Paul's words to think about that part of the gospel, the part of the gospel that we're all probably most familiar with, um, the event of cross and resurrection. Paul sometimes referred to as the uh, interpreter of the gospels. In most of his letters, uh, Paul isn't necessarily formulating the gospel for the first time. Usually his letters are to people where he's already kind of planted the seeds of the gospel, right? And so his letters are kind of expounding on it, um, the the, the implications of the gospel for the people that he's he's writing to. Um, And so I want us to think of Paul tonight as as an interpreter of the gospel. There's the gospel, but it needs interpretation into our lives. And Paul is is certainly uh, takes up the most text of our New Testament uh, of doing just that, interpreting what the gospel means for the, the early churches and for us today. And so, uh, 
as we think about the gospel um, needing an interpreter, uh, that, that Paul is an interpreter and that we are interpreters of the gospel, uh, I want to tell you one of my, fav- my favorite story of the time that I lived in India when I was there after high school. One of the things that we did a couple times, which was really cool, was we went to a leper colony and we fed them a meal. And it was really cool. We fed them the nicest meal, uh, the nicest kind of traditional wedding feast uh, in, in India. And we, we just fed them this meal. And at the end, uh, we handed out these orthopedic uh, sandals because a lot of these people who were suffering from leprosy, had they, they required orthopedic sandals for their feet. And so at the end, we had gotten a lot of them donated. And so we just had this big line of people and we were just giving them sandals. And my job in our little uh, assembly line was uh, after they picked out their sandals themselves, I was supposed to break the ties and help them get them on their feet if they need the help. And that was, that was my little job. So I asked my in- interpreter uh, to, to tell me how to say, uh, you look beautiful. Um, in, in Tamil is the language, I was in Tamil Nadu. And I asked him, how can I say, you look beautiful, so that I can put on the sandals and say, you look beautiful. And uh, he told me uh, how to say it. And I practiced it a couple times with him and it uh, sounded good. And so then for about 10 minutes, uh, all the people were going through and, and I just kept giving them their sandals and saying, you look beautiful. And I was just doing the big smile on my face and was not getting any smiles back. Um, and I was just like, I, this is so nice. I don't know why, like, no, no smiles back. Um, no good reactions. And finally, the interpreter, who's just kind of making rounds, about 10 minutes, uh, comes by and he's like, Nathan, say what you're saying to me again. And I'm like, I say the word, I can't remember the phrase um, in Tamil, but I say it and he's like, yeah, you have one part of that sentence wrong. You're not saying you look beautiful. You're saying you look filthy. Uh, And so I see why there weren't smiles (laughs) because for like, a lot of people going through for 10 minutes, um, I was just putting on their sandals going, you look filthy, with a big smile on my face. And I didn't get smiles back for some reason. Um, and the interpreter, it made his week. He, was, he laughed about it. Every time he saw me, he would say the phrase to me. Um, why filthy and beautiful have to be so close? I don't know. But, uh, but we need an interpreter when we talk about this event of death and resurrection. And I think we need an interpreter uh, for multiple reasons, but, but one is to make sure that uh, when we speak the gospel to people, when we gospel the gospel to people, that it's good news. That we're telling them, you look beautiful, not you look filthy. We need an interpreter. And so Paul gives us language with which to imagine our new life with God. And the phrase he uses most for this is deceptively simple, I think, just the phrase in Christ. Paul introduces this language of being in Christ and then expounds on what that means. What does it mean to be in Christ? If you remember uh, the chart that we threw up the first couple weeks of this series, uh, we talked about how the gospel has these these different components and there's the, the story of Israel and then there's the story of Jesus, and then there's the plan of salvation. Paul really camps out at the plan of salvation. Paul gets to look back at the life of Jesus, the story of Jesus, culminating in his death, uh, resurrection, and ascension. Paul gets to look at that and and reflect on God's plan of salvation. Uh, And I think we get to do the same thing. We get to reflect 
on all the implications of the gospel. And he does this, I think, uh, by really interpreting the, the crucifixion and the, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, so tonight we're going we're gonna to consider this culminating act of Jesus' life, and we're going to do it through the words of Paul. But first, let's pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said, the the cross and resurrection are are an event that Paul comes back to over and over and over again. And big caveat for the rest of this sermon, it's really important that we remember cross and resurrection go together. It's Good Friday and Easter. But uh, for the sake of the sermon, I'm going to probably be referencing the cross, but I mean both events because Paul spends a lot of time on both events. He spends plenty of time considering just the resurrection. But if you hear me say cross, just know that I I mean both, um, because I might get tired of saying both the whole time. But the cross is something that Paul comes back to over and over and over again. And uh, one of the first times he he really um, spends some time talking about the cross, and I think the biggest glimpse we get of how he views views talking about the cross is in 1 Corinthians um, chapters 1 and 2. Um, and we have some of these up here, uh, but a couple, a couple of verses where we see this. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. And this is the first time where Paul connects these ideas of the cross, the event, and a power of, of proclaiming that. There's a power there. And he continues, For the word of the cross is foolishness to the Gentiles, I'm sorry, that's later. Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So again, he even more defines that the word of the cross, when we speak of the cross, there's, that's the power of God. There's power in it. And then a little later, and this is one I really want us to think about tonight, in chapter 2 he says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So for Paul, there is power in proclaiming the gospel. And there's power in this event, this this culminating event of Jesus' life. The gospel is involved in, it involves this past event, but the meaning of it is not imprisoned in the past. The meaning of this event is not imprisoned in the past, but it, it jumps to us today. And so for, for throughout the history of the church, the church knows that there's something to this proclamation of the gospel. They know that there's something to the cross and the resurrection. One of my favorite spirituals uh, is a song called Balm in Gilead. Uh, some of you might have heard. Um, it says, There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the wounded soul. And the third verse says, If you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus how he died to save us all. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. Uh, Throughout all the history of the church, it's assumed that if you can point to Jesus... And if you can point to Jesus on the cross, then you are going to see God's heart for all of humanity. 
the, the theologian Karl Barth has a really interesting um, thing called the threefold word of God, where he, he's defining the word of God. And primarily, first, the word of God is Christ. He calls that the revealed word. Jesus Christ is, in the beginning, was the word. He's the revealed word. And then he says, what, uh, s- secondarily, we have the written word, which are the words of Scripture that we are given. They reveal uh, as well. They're the word of God. But secondarily, behind Christ himself is the word of God. And then he adds a third, and he calls it the proclaimed word. And the proclaimed word is any time where we're proclaiming uh, the revealed word with the words of the written word, the scripture, that there's something special in that. This phrase that we hear Paul use, the word of the cross, that there's something, there's something to that. There's a power in it. So with this idea comes that uh, when we tell the story of Jesus, if it's proclaimed, if it's gospeled, then there's power there. Uh, Fleming Rutledge wrote a book that I will pull from a bit more tonight. Uh, it's called The Crucifixion. And I just show it to say it's, it's one of the most important things I think I've read in a decade. Um, she's really, really great. And it, it, it's all about talking about the crucifixion. And uh, she says this. She says, The scandalous word of the cross is not a human word. It is a spirit-empowered presence of God in the preaching of the crucified one. The Holy Spirit inhabits the message and empowers the speaker so that the proclamation of God's act in Christ is the new occasion of creation, issuing from the Trinitarian power of the originating word itself. So kind of wordy there, but she's expounding on Bart's idea that, um, that there's a power in, in the proclaimed word uh, of the cross. Now, a lot of us probably know that a lot of ink has been spilled uh, over the last centuries, uh, on what exactly is happening on the cross? What's being achieved on the cross and, and in the empty tomb? It, it, there's so much ink that's been spilled that we have a whole category of theology called soteriology. And this is all a, a category of theology thinking about what is achieved on the cross? How are we saved? So if, if any of us grew up in church, we were raised with, with a certain soteriology. We were raised with, with an idea of what's happening on the cross. And you can decipher what that is if you just listen to the language that's being used when you talk about the cross or your church talks about the cross and the victory over death. But much of this ink uh, that's been spilled, it's been d- disagreements on one theory of atonement over another. And while I think, uh, I actually think soteriology as a, as a category of of theology, it's, I think it's necessary, and I actually think it's kind of beautiful. It's a beautiful testament to there is power here because we're talking about it. We can't stop talking and writing about it, and we're trying to understand. But I, tonight, I, I want us to, to try to get out of the mindset of theories, um, theories that we need to defend or, or lord over another and defeat another theory, um, because I think when you settle on and you defend one theory, I think it totally betrays the witness of Scripture. Because Scripture gives us a lot more than theories. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, again, she says, uh, Theory is a poor word to choose when seeking to understand the testimony of the Bible. The Old and New Testaments do not present theories at any time. Instead, we find stories, images, metaphors, symbols, sagas, sermons, songs, letters, and poems. 
It would be hard to find a writing that is less theoretical. And even Paul, perhaps the most intellectually gifted of the biblical writers, is highly contextual and unsystematic in his presentation of the Christian gospel. Again, Paul does not seek out to explain the cross to us. He's interpreting the cross into our lives. And at times, the, the vitriol that we use when we are debating theories of atonement, uh, sometimes I feel like that's taking the gospel and twisting it so that you say, you are filthy, you look filthy, and not you look beautiful. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, says something similar. Um, he says, the doctrines or theories of atonement, we could say, the doctrines we get out of the true myth, which if you're familiar with Lewis, true myth for him is, is, is the Christ, Christian gospel. Uh, emphasis on true. You have to go read them to, to see that. But true myth, the doctrines we get out of the true myth are, of course, less true. They are translations into our concepts and ideas of that which God has already expressed in a language more adequate namely the actual incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. He's essentially saying all the, all the thinking about doctrine, it, it's really great, theories, it's great, but um, it's never going to be as good as what we get in Scripture, the revealed, uh, the written word. Uh, it's never going to be as good. So how shall we interpret this culminating event of Jesus' life, the cross and the, the resurrection? One of the reasons that there are several different uh, atonement theories uh, is because Scripture uses several different themes and motifs uh, to interpret the cross. Several. Uh, and that's the, that's the aim of um, this book, Rutledge's book, is uh, she goes through all of them, um, even like really specific ones. Uh, she breaks them down into really specific different motifs that you see that run all the way through Scripture. And she's, she's showing you all of them one at a time and showing how they actually speak to one another. And I think she does this in a really uh, fair way, but yet with, with some, real, some real theological precision. Uh, but to keep it simple, I, I'm not going to run you through uh, this, this giant book, but um, the quickest overview ever, she, she breaks it down into two overall categories of the cross, how we understand the cross. Her two categories... I think I have a slide, are to understand the cross and what's happening um, through atonement on the cross and what's happening with deliverance on the cross. Atonement meaning the sin and the guilt for which atonement needs to be made. We're familiar with this. This is something that's happening on the cross. But also deliverance, uh, understanding uh, sin as, as slavery or bondage and oppression from which humankind needs to be delivered. If you remember, uh, Paul gave a, a sermon on uh, sin not long ago, and he actually even brought up two different kind of definitions of sin. One as the guilt we in participate in and, and incur on ourselves, but also sin as a power over us that we need delivered from. These are two overall categories. So an example of some of the, the different motifs we see through Scripture um, under atonement, uh, one is... Um, the whole theme of sacrifice, um, whether it be sin offerings, guilt offerings, um, seeing Christ as the Lamb of God. This is clearly a theme throughout all of Scripture. 
uh, and it's something that we see on the cross. And Hebrews, in fact, shows us that uh, something really unique that uh, on the cross, priest and sacrifice uh, become one uh, in Christ on the cross. Another one is the theme of ransom or redemption. We're familiar with that, um, the whole uh, imagery of being bought. Um, you know, and Jesus himself says that give his life as a ransom for many. Um, and Paul in 1 Corinthians, you were bought with a price. This idea that we're redeemed, something's happening on the cross where our lives are bought at a price. And then one, of course, we're familiar with is substitution. In some way on the cross, Christ is doing it in our place, on our behalf, for us. And this is, of course, everywhere. But one random example I, I have up here is, is Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is one of, like I said, many, many uh, passages that I could pull from where the theme of substitution is there. Now, and there's many more, by the way, um, that Rutledge even sketches, but that's just an example of, of this theme of atonement. This is happening on the cross. We know this. One of the biggest criticisms uh, that I've heard with, with these motifs, and a lot of us are probably familiar with, is sometimes these kind of ring in our ears like uh, Jesus is saving us from himself, that God is on the cross saving us from himself. I'm sure you, we're familiar with this, this idea. Um, uh, Bob shared a meme in his sermon a few weeks ago, and so I'm sharing a meme because that's acceptable now. Uh, and I don't know if you can read it. I'll read it to you. I don't know if you can read it. Now, this is, this is a mixture of, of kind of funny and sad, um, but I've seen this go everywhere on social media, but um, it's the classic Jesus knocking at the door uh, painting, and Jesus says, knock, knock, and the person there says, who's there? And Jesus says, it's Jesus. Let me in. The person says, why? He says, I have to save you. Where he says, from what? He says, from what I'm going to do with you if you don't let me in. Now, that's, it's funny. It's sad. I think th this, this matters. This is a valid question that a lot of Christians come to in their faith is, okay, I'm trying to wrap my mind around the cross, and it feels like God's saving me from himself. Uh, and this is a really silly way to portray that. And so there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, thinking that we need to do around this, of course, way more than we have time for in, in the remainder of this sermon. Uh, but we need to think about these huge concepts like the wrath of God, which is often linked with the cross. We have to think about what, what that means. Um, and we really need to think about what's happening between Father and Son and Holy Spirit uh, on the cross. But without getting too much into it tonight, I, I just want to say this. It's, it's really important that we know that the cross is an act of the Trinity, all three members of the Trinity are working together on the cross. It's super important to know that. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together uh, at Golgotha. But one reason I think that um, these atonement um, theories or motifs uh, of what's happening on the cross, uh, one reason I think we get stuck on them is because with a lot of those, we're thinking about only two players in the story, two characters, if you will, God and humanity the sacrifice, you know, the substitution. We're thinking about God and humanity. And something I think the, the other uh, set of category, the categories of, of what's happening on the cross, something I think it does for us is it reminds us that there's actually three players, three characters. There's God, humanity, and there's evil. 
There's a power of evil in our world. <laughs> uh, that's important. And so that's something that uh, these other um, motifs we see uh, really help us with. So under deliverance, um, and this is, again, not all of them that we see, but uh, a few to mention, we see the theme of new Passover and new Exodus. There's clearly something happening in cross and resurrection connected to this. Uh, Paul calls Christ our Paschal Lamb. Uh, So there's this theme of what we see in Moses, deliverance, is happening with us on the cross and resurrection. Another one is the harrowing of hell, uh, the whole idea of Christ going down to hell. And we see Paul use language uh, personifying death as the enemy. You know, oh, death, where is your sting? Where's your victory? Uh, that's in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and then the, the, the more formalized one is um, one called Christus Victor, the victory, victorious Christ. Uh, this theme that at the cross and resurrection, Christ is defeating something. And he's delivering us from a power. And again, this is everywhere in Paul and it's everywhere in Scripture. Um, but a couple that I, I think I have here for us is Romans 6, 9 where he says, death no longer has dominion over him. And death no longer will have dominion over us. We need saved from something's dominion. Uh, And then um, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. This is Romans 16. And again, this this is all throughout Scripture. So Scripture gives us not theories of atonement, but many different motifs to describe what's happening on the cross. Last week, when we looked at the different gospel writers, we we said that there's this anamorphic witness to the gospel. They're all just seeing different angles, but of the same thing. And I think uh, tonight we're seeing the same thing. Scripture gives us an anamorphic witness to the cross, different themes. Paul doesn't explain this culminating act of Christ's life as much as he interprets it for his listeners. And so for us, as witnesses to the gospel, I think we interpret this event and the entire life of Christ as well. It makes me think of uh, Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch uh, where uh, it's Philip uh, comes up to him and asks him what he's reading and he says he's reading the uh, scroll of Isaiah and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I? (laughs) Unless someone helps me. How how can I understand this? And then Philip sits with him and, and helps him. And it says that uh, Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news of Jesus. Like Philip, uh, we as witnesses uh, to this culminating event of Jesus' life, of his saving story, we are to be interpreters of the story of Jesus. And so, what I want to suggest to us uh, ways to be good interpreters, the main one I want to suggest is that. In order to interpret this story, this event, we need to inhabit it ourselves. We need to inhabit this story. And we need to inhabit this event of cross and resurrection. Uh, A hymn that's become one of my favorites, largely because Jake keeps leading it, like a lot he keeps leading it, is uh, Rock of Ages. Um, And there's that line, my favorite line in there, uh, is Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. I love that imagery of like hiding ourselves in Christ, hiding ourselves in his story, inhabiting it. So the church is is a witness to the gospel only uh, when we hide ourselves in in this this story, in this event. 
And when we do that, we begin uh, to take on the shape of, of what we call cruciformity, uh, being in the form of the cross. And our witness is supposed to be cruciform. It's supposed to look like the cross, self-giving, self-emptying. That's what our witness looks like. It's the only valid way to interpret uh, to people uh, the love of Jesus. Um, Michael Gorman, he's a, a New Testament scholar, he writes, uh, to be in Christ is to be a living exegesis of the narrative of Christ, a new performance of the original drama. Uh, basically summing up the whole, the whole sermon as far as interpreting um, to be in Christ is to be a living interpretation of the gospel to all around us. A new performance of the original drama, original story. And so when our lives become cruciform, the power of the cross uh, will be seen in, in both our word and our deed. And I'll end with just pointing to one way that we do inhabit this story and we inhabit this event of the cross every single week. Uh, and that's, of course, when we participate in the Eucharist. Every single week when we do this, we are proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection. And this is, this is the highlight of our entire service. This is the pinnacle of our service. Uh, if you've ever wondered why we do it last in the service, that's why. It's not on accident. Uh, it's the pinnacle of our service. Uh, it's, it's just a little bit higher than our, our songs and our prayer time, even our sermon uh, this will surprise you, but even our announcements later, like the Eucharist is even higher. Um, it's the pinnacle of our service. And when we do this, as we all know, we, we pray these prayers beforehand, and then we go and we, then we, we, we take the bread and the cup. And so we are proclaiming Christ's death in our word, in the prayers, and in our deed, in the eating. The moment in the gospel where Christ I think most interprets his own death and resurrection is at the table when he proclaims his coming death. And when he does it, he gives his disciples an action. He says, do this, do this in remembrance of me. Keep the feast, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. These are the words of Paul that we read earlier tonight. So every week here at Wheatland, this is the pinnacle of our service when we take in the body in the blood of Christ, proclaiming his death and his resurrection. And I do just want to point out, these prayers that we read, we get them from the Book of Common Prayer, and there's four different alternative, alternative prayers that we do. Uh, we rotate them every now and then. Uh, there's, a, there's kind of a fourfold uh, pattern to these prayers, if you've ever noticed. There's, it always begins with praise, often, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, Right? And then from praise, it goes on to narrate the gospel. There's always like a paragraph, maybe two, where within just a paragraph, it narrates the gospel, which by the way, it, it narrates the gospel that we've defined in this series, where it involves the Old Testament, involves a saving story of Jesus, and it culminates in his death and resurrection, all of that there. It narrates the gospel to us. And then we read the words, every, in all the prayers, we read the words that Christ said at the Last uh, Supper when he instituted this sacrament. And then it, it always ends with a prayer over the elements. We call this prayer the epiclesis, praying that the Holy Spirit would be present uh, when we do this. 
But that part, I, I just invite you tonight, um, that part when we narrate the gospel, it's in there, and I, I invite you to, to hear it. Um, I invite you to hear it every week. Um, and, I, and I know, um, I know that uh, it being at the end of the service, sometimes we're like, okay, can we get through these prayers? Can I get up there and receive the communion and go have dinner uh, or get my kid out of nursery? I know it's, I know it can be, it takes intention. Um, of course, of course it takes intention. Uh, but I, I invite you when we pray these prayers um, to, to do our best to hear the words anew every single week because we're being formed by them. I pray that we're being formed by them uh, into cruciformity. And so I end with a, um, a, a phrase that uh, Anglicans often say um, at the end of their, their communion before they go up and take it. Uh, I think this sums up the sermon as well. They often say, Behold what you are, become what you receive, the body and blood of Jesus Christ.